Welcome to Series 2 of Deep Pollution from Salvage Wire. In this podcast, we interview interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and the vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this episode, we welcome motor claim guru, Tim Kelly. Tim has worked in the motor industry all his life and supports consumers and vehicle repairers in their dealings with motor insurers following a motor vehicle claim. This is a very interesting conversation that I hope will provoke some discussion. As a reminder, all views and comments on the podcast are those of the guest and do not reflect the views of SalvageWire, the SalvageWire team, affiliated companies and partners. Tim, thank you f- so much for taking the time to come and join us on the Depollution podcast today. As a way of introduction, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your career, who you've worked for, but more importantly, your current role and the company that you work for at the moment? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity as well for the podcast, because I've been looking forward to it, as I think you might have done, because you know I might be slightly contentious with what I say. Um, my background was I, I started off as a mechanic. I've always loved vehicles. I always loved being in the molds trade very passionate about engineering and engineering things correctly. Started off working on Saab as a YTS, as many did in like the 1980s, if they can remember YTSs and working on 27 pound a week. Um, thoroughly loved working on them and did a year on Saab, went on to a little independent garage then where uh, it was the stereotypical garage in the village, even though it wasn't a village where if it was a moped or 32 ton wagon, it didn't matter. It was, can you fix it? And there it was more a matter of, uh, it wasn't necessarily mechanical. It could have been anything. It could be mechanical body pain. You know, you just, whatever came in, you, you fixed it. And the, the primary point of view of uh, teaching at that point from the, the owner was, I'm just going out for some bits down to, <laughs> down to the salvage yard. Uh, this car's coming in, just put an engine in that. It's like, well, I don't know how to do it. Well, you'll fix it yourself when you'll suss it. So it was very much, um, I learned by experience and dropped in at the deep end. Uh, I went from working on cars then to working on HGVs and did an apprenticeship at a company called Derwent Vehicles in Trafford Park. Uh, I kind of stood out because I was the smallest person in the company and everybody else was in the workshop was like a big souring thug of a, a bloke. and. Uh, Again, I just got dropped in the deep end and uh, I'd, I was put under the wing of a, a supervisor who was fantastic and it, his approach to things was uh, being methodical and being attentive and being systematic in your approach. And it's these things that I've kind of carried on through my career really mm-hmm. in terms of just being methodical and accurate and paying attention to detail. Went from being a mechanic, realised there wasn't enough money in it and it's hard work on your knees and your back and everything else and I decided to go into training. Became an MVQ assessor. Um, I used to lecture at college. Uh, well, I used to lecture at a private training centre originally. Uh, is how it started off. Did two years there. Whilst doing my qualifications, used to work at night school as a lecturer. Um, then got an opportunity at RAC Accident Services. Um, it was there that I kind of really started on to my journey to being an engineer. Initially, I started off on the claims side of it as a claims handler and a breakdown handler. Uh, once I realised I had knowledge in the motor industry, they had an engineering section and a fleet engineering section and said, well, 
you probably know more than the people that work on this department from an engineering point of view. Would you mind helping our staff? And again, I, because they knew that I'd trained in the past and been a, a college lecturer, they basically had me train their staff in terms of this is the basic principles of a, of a vehicle. These are the components of it. This is how it works. This is how it's put together. This is what you do in terms of the repair side of it. So worked for them for, I think it's probably about four, four or so years. Uh, but whilst I worked there, we had a company that we used to work with which was a, an independent engineering company called Hermes Technical Consultants. Mm -hmm. And my primary role was to uh, discuss salvage with them in terms of salvage values that we get back off them. But I also used to audit the reports and there was things that I used to bring up on audit that I wasn't quite happy with from uh, an engineering point of view. And I think basically just saw me as a pain in the ass, but they realized that even though I was a pain in the ass, you know, I, was, I probably had a point and I knew what I was talking about. Uh, so they offered me a job. And it was basically, here's your car, here's your keys. Uh, you're covering the north of England and off your pop. So they didn't give me any training. They just threw me at the deep end. And again, it was, you know. That seems to be a trend through your life, you know. <laughs> it, well, I, I think all the way back to the start from people coming into uh, the monster industry, certainly going back into the 80s, I think that was kind of fundamental in the way it was. Mm. Uh, certainly from a YTS point of view, you were seen as being the person who is uh, cleaning and brushing up. And you weren't probably trained the way you should have been and you didn't get the experience for it. Whereas I think then you were on a, a sharp learning curve because then if you went from one company to another company, mm. they expected you, you to know more than you did. And then it was like, well, you just got to teach yourself. Mm. And I think that's something else as well that's kind of through me, through my life journey and career journey. It's all about learning and you can't afford to stand still. You've yeah. got to continue educating yourself and be open to learning all the time. Um, and that's certainly what I did with Hermes because yeah. I worked with them for about 18 months and they, they properly threw me at the deep end uh, to the point of they didn't even show us how to use Thatcham or any type of estimating tool. And the way I learned about estimating was from body shops. A question mm -hmm. if I get an estimate, didn't have a clue what it was about. And then I'd, I'd basically make them just fight the times to me. Yeah. But again, uh, I learned from the people around me and learned from your peers. And I think when you've done that, in such a way where you're kind of self-taught and you've had to work it out yourself. I think in a lot of ways, it makes you a better engineer. Mm. Uh, but went from being an independent engineer, then got offered an opportunity at Direct Line, uh, worked for them for eight years. Uh, at the start of it, thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely fantastic place to work. Uh, that started off from bumping into a Direct Line engineer at a repair centre and seeing him in a brand new BMW and I was in a Vauxhall Vectra and I thought, <laughs> clearly I'm working for their own company. I will work in that company instead. <laughs> but uh, I ended up as a desk engineer. So I'd worked for them for eight and a half years. Uh, got made redundant in 2008 at the point when the crash came. Mm -hmm. And from there, it was like, do I really want to be an engineer? Not sure. So I took a bit of time out to consider what I wanted to do in my future. Seriously considered working for myself. Um, again, I had a, an ex-colleague who was an ex-RBS engineer, but had moved to Aviva. And he said, come to Aviva, it's a fantastic place to work. It's nothing like RBS, nothing like Direct Line. It's awesome. You'll love it. It's great. And I was more of a, I was like a, a reluctant skill child having to go back to work again. So, you know, and I'm like, oh, do you really want to? And I'm not quite sure. But uh, I got talked into it. And, and, and this is probably more of a little funny side story was I actually tried not to get the job because the, the job role that I was being offered was lower than an engineer. It was just like a desktop support type of engineer. And... I cheekily asked for a, a lot more money than what was on a direct line. And it's certainly a, a massive amount more than what they were offering for the, the role they were doing. 
And I actively tried not to get the job because I didn't want it. And a week later, they ran me up and said, like, I'd say, OK, just to let you know, you've not got the job. And I thought, fantastic, I got away with this. However, <laughs> you know, we, we, we can't offer you this role. You easily, you know, you've actually overqualified for it. But however, would you like this role as an engineer? And they said, we'll offer you what you're going to pay, you know. Well, they pay you after all, we offer it. So it was a bit compromised because I didn't want it. But I ended up working for them. Uh, spent two years there. But again, it got to a point where redundancies came. Mm-hmm. Uh, on being made redundant, it was then the time to contemplate, right, what, what is it I want to do? Uh, I'm clearly not a great employee because I've always been opinionated. I've always been vocal. I'm not scared of saying what's in my mind or if I see something wrong, I'll, I'll say it and I'll challenge things. Uh, that's not often the best type of personality to have in an insurance company because they don't like non-conformist and I'm clearly a non-conformist. Um, but I did realise that I could use that to my advantage. Mm. And that then is how Multiclaim Guru started off. Right. Okay. So explain Multiclaim Guru. What, what's your um, sort of role? What does the company do for the, for the industry? Well, the primary site of Multiclaim Guru was to help consumers. And it was to help consumers when they were coming up against issues dealing with insurance companies. Yeah. Certainly in cases... I mean, Multiclaim Guru actually started off as a, a different company, as a name initially, as a, as a thought. It was going to be Total Loss Guru. And it was, if somebody wasn't happy with the settlement on the vehicle, I'd negotiate on their behalf. Mm-hmm. But then within the development stages of me looking at the company and looking at how Google Analytics looked at search terms put into Google, nobody searched for Total Loss, basically. So what they did search for was Multiclaim. And mm-hmm. then that was kind of how the name started off. What that then did was open up the scope of things that I might help people with. So it then just went away from discussing settlement to mm-hmm. looking at why a claim might be repudiated. Has it been cancelled? Is there any reason why an insurance company is not paid out to mm-hmm. settlement? So a whole range of different things. Um, I also aimed at helping... Well, uh, the aim was to help body shops as well as a yeah. secondary thing. But yeah. as with most things, you see a consultant as somebody taking something away from them rather than giving something to them that might benefit them. So that initial kind of rejection from them took me down the path of primarily helping consumers, uh, which thoroughly enjoy because it's great when you actually get the right outcomes for consumers, mm-hmm. when certainly when they've been through a very stressful situation and, they, and they've not got the knowledge of their experience or the background to kind of challenge an insurance company, and they are very much on their own. So to take that role over, and I've been doing things like that for, for years on forums, giving impromptu advice, and this was just kind of making it a bit more business-like and uh, a means for me to earn a career out of it. Yeah. And it develops, it certainly develops over the last five or six years, but it's gone full circle. And what I've done is the the lessons that I've learned in handling claims for the consumers that I've been dealing with has now developed into a situation where I can bring that knowledge to repairers to help them in their dealings with insurance companies, their mm-hmm. communications with engineers, uh, the dealings with the claims handlers and that's kind of brought me into this last year and the year before certainly with uh, COVID has been a challenge because when COVID started off I realised that uh, looking at what's happening in China and other countries that if they're locked down in the UK then a large amount of the, the people would you know would no longer be driving yeah. certainly then there'd be less people having accidents and because I generally get it get it right at the very end there's less people having accidents and less people making claims. There's probably going to be less complaints. And then that, for me, was uh, an income stream that's going to disappear. So 
in the last two years, what I've then done is um, I've not stopped doing that. I've still, it's still been like a, a primary part of what I do, but I've also then brought in a separate kind of income stream, which has been focused on body shops and training them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what sort of training are you, are you, are you providing for collision repair centers and body shops? Yeah. So again, this is, this is stemmed from the lessons that I've learned through dealing with consumers. And going back to how I started off with multi-claim guru and the lessons where I, I've learned from it was that uh, my background as an engineer and getting the qualifications that I got. So when I was at Direct Line, I always wanted to kind of further my education and become a better engineer. So uh, I joined the Institute of Automotive Engineering Assessors. Mm-hmm. I went through their qualifications and I went through the different... Uh, units that had in terms of accident reconstruction, uh, insurance, law, loss assessing, uh, and then a practical examination. And I think for anybody who was wanted to come into the industry, even whether it be a VDA or an estimator, or certainly an engineer from an insurance company, or if they include management, I think it's a fantastic uh, institute. And I think it's got massive potential in what it can provide by way of education to anybody coming into the industry because certainly uh, I'm an advocate of them and I, I, I learned a lot from doing it but what it also did was it developed a passion for law mm-hmm. I, I love law completely I find it fascinating and that's something I brought into doing what I'm doing now um, when I got into being multi-claim guru and from having this background as an engineer and having worked in the industry for as long as I have you kind of presume that you know what you're talking about yeah. And, you know, I've been indoctrinated by the companies that I work for. And when you work in an environment where everybody's doing the same thing and you believe it to be right, you accept it. Mm-hmm. What changed in multi-claim guru was the, uh, a conversation I had with the Financial Commons Authority. And it's one of the most bizarre conversations I've had in my life. And it started off that I didn't know whether I needed to be regulated or not. So I contacted them and I said, they're my new business. There's nobody else in the UK doing what I'm doing. So there isn't anybody I can mirror. So I'm just trying to find out whether I need to be regulated or not. No problem, Tim. What is it you're doing? Well, I'll be doing this. That's fine. If you do that, you don't need to be regulated. Is there anything else you'll be doing? Well, I could be doing this. That's totally fine, Tim. If you're doing that, you don't need to be regulated. But if you do the pair of them together, you do. Oh, right. Okay. Well, is there anything else you're doing? Well, I might do this. So, for example, negotiating a claim. No problem. You don't need to be regulated. But if you do that and that together, you do. But if you do that and that together, you don't. Right, okay. So what happens if I need to be regulated and I'm not? You can be fined or imprisoned. So you can be imprisoned for up to six years or you can be fined 10% of your global turnover or, you know, or big amounts. So it's something serious that I had to address. Now, at this time, I had £10,000 redundancy money. So everything I did was a balance of either time or money. So do I spend my time on it or do I spend my money on it? So I looked seriously at becoming regulated by the SEA. And to apply for it is £1,600, and that's just to apply not to get it. And I spoke to the SEA and I said, OK, so I could see it's quite complex, this, but how do I know whether I need to be regulated or not? And this is their honest answer. They went, we won't tell you. At which point, I literally fell off my chair. I couldn't believe it. So I said, well, how do I find out? And they said, well, you need an SEA consultant. So I'm like, right, goes away, speaks to an SEA consultant, nine and a half grand. So instantly, I'd have lost all my redundancy money and putting it forward is something that might not benefit me. So I thought, I can't afford that. So what I'll do is I'll read the FCA regulations. And this is certainly where my path to 
enlightenment, should we say, mm. being the guru, uh, started off from in terms of education. Because what I did was I started reading all the regulations and uh, the things that I learned from reading regulations changed me from an engineer to uh, being more of an insurance expert. Yeah. And the thing that I found, uh, the more educational side of it and the most shocking side of it is that having come from an insurance background like the Federals have is that at no point has any insurance company ever taught me about the, the regulations, but mm. the regulations are the rules by which they must abide by. Yeah. So it was then learning that all the things that I thought I've been doing right for the last 15 years have practically been doing wrong. Right. And it's that was a big shock to me, as I'm sure it would be to most people working mm. in the insurance industry. But uh, it was then that I then learned that because what I thought I'd been doing was right was now wrong, and I now knew the right way of doing it, I could use these as tools to facilitate yeah. claims, customers, and I could pass that knowledge on to repairers to help them do the same. Brilliant. So what sort of success stories can you can you share with us about how you've helped a, a, a repairer or a consumer? Uh, I could be here or I could be here for weeks on that one, without a doubt. It's, um, I've had some absolutely amazing stories of things where it's the thing is with a claim is that uh, you never know how the insurance company is going to react to it. You never know how the ombudsman is going to react to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's working out as to which path is the best. So it might be sometimes it's best to take somebody's court uh, and sue them for breach contracts. Other times it's better to go the FOS route. So when somebody comes to me with an issue, uh, I've got to work out the best way of doing it. And sometimes people can afford to go the legal route and the times they can. So I had one particular situation where uh, this was a body shop and it was just a peculiar situation because they, they tried to do the best thing all the time for the insurance company. So why the insurance company didn't help the body shop, I don't know, but they just took this, this viewpoint and stance that was just crazy. Uh, the body shop had done some trade work on a vehicle mm -hmm. and they prepped it for sale, basically, and done some minor paint work on it. Guy purchased the vehicle, spotted something he wasn't happy with, so the trader took it back to them and said, right, can you rectify this? No problem. The vehicle's parked outside their premises. And whilst it's parked outside their premises, after they've rectified it, HGV uh, was driving past with a trailer on the back of it. And as it swung round to turn round, it basically dragged this car 20 yards down the street. <laughs> so it made a bit of a mess of it. And... Um, Obviously, they got a car set on CCTV. They went to the, the driver. The haulage company went, yeah, no problem. Hands up. We know it's mm. double fault. No problem. Uh, the insurance company, uh, it's a UK-based insurance company, but they've also, the primary base was in Ireland. So it made things a bit difficult because it's communicating with Ireland. And it's an Irish haulage company. Yeah. Uh, so as not to disadvantage the customer, the body shop repaired the car, got it sorted out give the car back to the customer. The customer was trying it on a bit as well because he wanted compensation. For, I wanted cash in his hand and he was like, no, not, not following for it. And this body shop repaired the car at what was to all intents and purposes the trade figure. So they hadn't done it at a commercial rate, they hadn't charged retail rates, so they'd been totally reasonable what they'd done. And this insurance company refused to pay them, just flat back, just went, no, we're not liable for it, but we're not paying it because you profiteered from this incident because you're a body shop. And it's like, well, no, that will the <laughs> fact. You know, the fact we're a body shop doesn't mean that we can't make profit because we still have to repair it and we've done it at lower rates and you know, they agree, but we just tried it on. Uh, 
they tried for a year and a half to get paid by this insurance company to no success. Uh, there's uh, an industry colleague uh, called Neil Buckley, works for a company called One Call Business Services. Uh, I think he's now left there, but he put them in contact with me and said, I think the person you need to speak to is Tim. Uh, they got me involved. I tried to deal with this insurance company and they just blanked me. Uh, I've got some good contacts in Northern Ireland as a, as a company called Granite Legal Services, who I'm good friends with. And I structured the case and then had them running it for me. And then we took this insurance company to court. And within three days of me getting involved with it and taking them to, and threatening to take them to court and issuing proceedings on them, they paid out. Wow. So it was a year and a half. Uh, but what happened then was that I basically sued for uh, interest at 8% on the 1984 County Court Act. The amount of time mm -hmm. it took uh, compensation for loss of business, lots of different things on the back end of it. So the repairer then was like, they've now become one of my best advocates because they've enjoyed yeah. it. And yeah. they, they went from something that was a very stressful situation to being like blown away. Brilliant. Uh, that's one with the, with the body shop. Consumer ones are different. So I've had things where I think the biggest increase in settlement I've had on a claim was on a horse box and I got them £45,000 more than where they were at originally. <laughs> uh, and that stemmed from the insurance, the insurance company trying to total loss the vehicle and the guy wanted it repairing. It was a constructive total loss, but I did have sympathy with the insurance company because uh, what had happened was this horse back box had had a paint stripper thrown over it. Oh, right. And being glass fibre, it just gets into old joints. Yeah. Like I said, yeah, and he, it's just you open a huge tin of worms. But ultimately, this guy wanted to keep it and repair it. Uh, they offered settlement on the valuation of the vehicle less than what he wanted for it. So that was one side of it. And then even though they didn't want to deal with it on the basis of him retaining it, they wanted mm. to deduct a huge amount of money for salvage. Uh, the result I got out of them was that I made them agree to a higher valuation on it and weigh the salvage figure. And that's the reason why it's such a big amount of assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this customer was just blown away. Absolutely mm -hmm. couldn't believe it because it's a huge amount of money. Yeah. Uh, and then I think one of the best ones they've done from a body shop point of view is there's a, a body shop called Castle Coachworks, who's one of my regular customers, uh, of which I do quite a lot of training with. Mm -hmm. He had a customer who is a YouTuber, quite a, a quite prominent YouTuber, so I won't say his name. Uh, lovely lad, doesn't often make the right choice in what he's doing, because he's, he's been a customer three times now, so he's a great customer for me. And uh, I've, I've managed to help him out every time out of the three times. But this specific situation was, uh, he bought a Mercedes AMG SLS, so beautiful car, mm. and paid £95,000 for it, Paid, I think he paid £45,000 in cash for it, and then he, the rest was on finance. Now, thinking he's being bright, uh, he told the insurance company that he thought it was worth fifty-five grand. <coughs> Excuse me. Not the ninety-five grand, because he thought it might reduce his, his premium. Uh, he probably wraps it up around the lamppost, does a lot of damage to it. Now, being an aluminium-based car, there's only, you know, so many... Repairers in the UK that repair it. Castle Coachworks is one of them. Castle Coachworks, you know, we absolutely want to repair this car because, in our eyes, it's repairable all day long because we've got repair costs somewhere in the region of forty to fifty thousand pounds. It's a ninety-five thousand pound car. You know, it's repairable all day long. Uh, the insurance company were trying to say the vehicle's a total loss because they had it within their policy that you know it's worth fifty-five thousand pound, and at forty-five in their eyes, it was dead. 
Castle Coach Works put this customer in contact with me. Uh, so the way I work so that I don't need to be regulated is I, I work in a, it's on a, a legal route where I become the appointed representative of the customer. Yeah. So in effect, I become then and become in contract with them. So it makes it more difficult for the insurance company in terms of uh, we've now got a bit of parity because we're on an equal footing. And I put the situation to them to say that, you know, this vehicle is, it's insured for the market value. So even though they're saying within the scope of their policy, they could limit their liability to £55,000. I said, it's still repairable at 45. The repairer wants it repairing. This guy's going to be 40 grand out of pocket should you not repair it because he's got 50 grand of finance on it. Uh, so if we talk loss it at 45 grand, he'll have no car and all 50 grand. So it's not best for the customer, which there's a section within the regulations called ICOPS 2.5.1, called the best customer's in, well, the customer's best interest rule. Mm -hmm. So just you need to abide by the regulations. And, you know, by doing this, you will be. Uh, I said, but what if I create a tripartite contract where I have it so the customer agrees that if the repair costs them more than £50,000, that he'll pay the rest of it. If it's less than, well, say, for example, 55 grand, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So if it's more than 55 grand, he pays for it. If it's less than 55 grand, then you'll only get charged what it'll cost you. And the insurance company basically said yes. So it meant that they were happy because they haven't lost a customer who's quite a high net worth individual. Castle Coach was happy because they got a big repair out of this out of it at 40 well i think it was 48 grand they ended up at mm -hmm. so the the insurance company happy as well because it was less than the expected uh the customer was happy so that's probably one of the best successful stories really because it meant that everybody involved was happy and that that's the driving thing in what i do i like people to be happy at the end of it question question on that is has he now gone back and renewed his insurance at the correct market value Yes, he has. But he, there's, there's now a secondary story. Like I said, he's been one of my best customers because he keeps going back. And I keep saying, what are you doing? So his most recent one was with a Range Rover with flood damage where he died all at the engine. Oh, no. And he's got a, a Range Rover SVR. And he thought that being a Range Rover SVR, that it's a Range Rover, he can go off-road in it, not realising it's an SVR and the air duct is in the front bumper. He's drove through flood water. It sucked, sucked water into the engine. And... Uh, the insurance company he's insured through at the moment is one of the worst ones I've ever dealt with in my life. They're just frightening. Uh, they strung his claim out for over a year, and his car is part of his brand image for YouTube, so he uses it in his YouTube videos to create revenue. Uh, so it was costing him money not to have the vehicle in his mm. YouTube videos. And uh, the way this specific company dealt with him was just mind-boggling. Uh, but ultimately I sorted it out and I made them pay him a cash settlement at 18 grand whereas before I got involved uh we were refusing to pay out yeah. <laughs> so but he's now got that sorted out and ironically he went to a salvage agent and he's got a new a brand well he managed to get a nearly new engine from a salvage agent for an SVR uh, and he's got it repaired and everything's hooked it up in it brilliant We will come back to our conversation with Tim in a moment. Salvage Wire have been supporting the vehicle recycling and dismantling industry for years with their specially designed accredited training courses on the safe handling of electric and hybrid vehicles. These courses are now even more relevant to the industry as the volumes of these vehicles increases. So learn how to keep your team and your business safe by registering for one of our courses many of which are now available online 
so you do not have to leave your office, your study or your workshop to complete the training. Contact SalvageWire through our website www.salvagewire.com. Back to our conversation with Tim. Talking about salvaging, you just mentioned salvage agents there. Um, <coughs> reclaim parts or recycle parts, whatever you want to call them, is sort of a hot topic once again. And it looks like you know, there might well be a true desire to make it work. Um, what's your view on recycle parts in the repair of insurance funded vehicles? Uh, and I'm glad you've actually worded it so specifically as well, because it's it's a really important point to make. So within the within the actual uh, claims process and claims journey and how our policy is created and underwritten, uh, I don't I wouldn't want uh, reclaim parts to be used in that journey, mm-hmm. categorically not. And, it, and it's not because I don't think that the parts are, are not fit for use or fit for purpose and they shouldn't be used. Uh, it's nothing to do with the repair side of it and the salvage side of it. It's primarily to do with the contracts of insurance. And okay. a contract of insurance, uh, so any contract of insurance, uh, stems from the 1906 Marine Act. That was the fundamental basis of all insurance. And if you think about why it, is the, it was the Marine Act, it's now the 2015 Insurance Act, which is... Uh, so it, that was the biggest change ever in over 100 years. So it shows mm-hmm. you how long it's took to kind of change it. But the marine act stem, stemmed from uh, wayfarers transporting goods over the globe mm-hmm. and an owner of a ship having to ensure what he's carrying, aside from the vessel, and going to bankers in London, which ultimately was a large syndicate, and saying, you know, I'm carrying so much in terms of goods and property. Uh, I need to insure them because should something happen to it, I'm liable for it. And then allowed syndicate then agreeing to different proportionality. So somebody's saying, well, I'll insure the first first 1,000, the next one, you know, I'll insure the next 5,000, next one, the next 50,000 and so on. What you have with insurance is that it's clear that if you've got something like that where it's a syndicate, that they can't then go out and replace that vehicle. If it was on a multi-claim now and say, right, well, you've damaged your vehicle, replace it or, you know, we'll pay for one part and I'll pay for another part. It's not going to happen. Uh, what it was all about is financial compensation. Mm-hmm. And that's the primary thing with any type of insurance policy, whether it's household, whether it's, you know, life insurance, motor. It's nothing to do on, on a motor side of it with repairing a car or on a household side of it in terms of repairing a house. It's about providing financial recompense for the loss that occurred at the point happened. Mm-hmm. And I think what you've got with insurance claims is that it's a conflict of interest when you have an insurance company acting as the agent of repair and then instructing that repair. And in this point, what they do is I see the reason why they would want to use non-original parts or reclaim parts is because of a financial benefit to them, not as a financial benefit to the customer. And I think it's treating the customer unfairly. Uh, should it be that an insurance company paid settlement? And this is this. Different countries have different uh, different ways of doing things. So, for example, in Germany, that, the way they would operate is that they'd send out an engineer to inspect a vehicle, he'd assess the damage to the vehicle, and they'd provide a cash and lease settlement. Mm. Now, it then means that that gives, from an insurance company's point of view, I actually think it's a much better thing because it takes them away from vicarious liability should they not repair a car correctly. So mm-hmm. it's, got, it's certainly got a real benefit to them. From a consumer's point of view, it, it means that should they wish to go uh, and have their vehicle using reclaimed parts, uh, it gives them the option. 
So they can go, you know, they can get the car repaired where they want, which is something that everybody's entitled to. But what happens in the UK, that doesn't happen as much as what it should do because the insurance company steers the repairs to their repairers. Uh, using a model like Germany, I think would probably in some ways be a better thing because it, the things that would stop reclaimed parts being used in the UK, uh, that would overcome them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, you, you said there, you said reclaimed parts and aftermarket. So you're lumping the, both aftermarket and reclaimed into the same pot in, in this instance. Yeah, primarily from, like I said, from an insurance point of view, it's because of the cost benefits to the yeah. insurance company. Uh, so it, it's, I'm not lumping them together in terms of quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just primarily doing that to kind of identify the cost benefits of the insurance company and lumping it together that way. Yeah. Okay. Now, if we do go down that cash in lieu route that you've that you mentioned that Germany use, um, surely that then opens up the, uh, the the situation for poor quality repairs for um, stolen parts for parts that are, are, haven't got provenance being used, um, or even dangerous parts being used. Uh, it does have a potential for that. And again, this is something where it would actually benefit an insurance company because should that be a situation where it still potentially could happen over here, um, it takes them out of that vicarious liability. Mm. So it, it may, from an insurance company's point of view, it's a lot safer way of doing things. Uh, from and again, it's looking at what a contract of insurance is there for, and is you know is it there to repair cars safely and correctly? Well, obviously it is, but that isn't the sole means by which an insurance company can indemnify uh, a policy. So the, the ways you can do that is by way of either total loss of the vehicle, authorising repairs of the vehicle, or cashing the settlement. So mm-hmm. the option to cash in lieu is already there with mm-hmm. every policy in the UK. Uh, so the things that you're bringing up there those issues are already there now and yet it, it doesn't seem to be an issue to the insurance industry yeah but but to be fair cash in lieu is 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 used quite sparingly isn't it it's not it's not the common practice um it's not a common practice because it's not what insurance companies want to do uh, there's fundamentally the background of insurance companies is a fear of fraud mm-hmm. uh which is why they are always they would much prefer not to give somebody cash because yeah. they they might fear fraudulent activity in the background Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is probably unfounded, to be honest, because you're entitled to a cash settlement irrespective. Yeah. You know, again, whether it be a life insurance, house insurance, or a motor, uh, it's just that motor is quite unique in this aspect, where uh, it's something that, that that changed from probably back into the 1980s, where uh, it was much more common then. Certainly, through the 1970s as well, because what you would fundamentally do is you get your vehicle repaired and you send the invoice into a repair, uh, to the insurance company and they pay you a cash settlement. So I think what's happened is that uh, where it's gone through the 1970s and 80s, the industry's changed and consumer behaviour's changed. And the fundamental changes were when Direct Line came into the industry and what they saw and how they changed it. And it was a dynamic change was they made things easy. Mm-hmm. And that then is something where the rest of industries had to follow. But if you're then saying as a consumer and it, it's, you know, it, and it's certainly going to be a shocking time when you make a claim and it's something that you might not have gone through and you, you might not know how to handle it. For somebody to say, don't worry about anything. You just give us your car keys. We'll take the car away. We'll get it repaired. Don't worry about it. It will be fine. Yeah. Uh, it's something that fundamentally changed uh, the insurance industry and everybody else has followed. But I think there's also changes going on in the industry now, certainly as we move towards 
uh, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, the skill sets that are needed there to repair them. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think that somebody who owns a Tesla, an insurance company is going to be really challenged to change the viewpoint of that owner to say, come into our approved repair network. It's not Tesla approved, but, you know, we go there and it's like, well, does this repairer have the relevant skill set and, you know, <laughs> to repair it? Have they been trained in EV vehicles? Do they have the software to plug into Tesla and things like that? So I think this thing's there where, again, uh, there'll be certainly certain stumbling blocks that's going to be in front of insurance companies going forward in the future where a cash and, settlement, cash and lease settlement's not results it for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it then comes down to quantum, you know, have they been provided the, 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 the correct amount of funds to their customer to repair it? Yeah. Um, that's certainly something I see happening in the future in terms of uh, insurance companies are going to have to change and adapt again, mm-hmm. unless they actually invest in their infrastructure. So mm-hmm. I know certainly with the likes of Aviva, um, they're creating more solar sites because yeah. they realise that uh, the dynamics of the repair industry is changing. There's certainly uh, a higher rate of attrition there. There's a lot of consolidation going on between the, you know, some of the larger networks, and there's going to be some of the smaller repairers that are kind of being left out on the side that might need to specialise a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've got that and you're looking at the developing technology and vehicles, then uh, you might need to send that vehicle to that specialist, then it's a higher cost to the insurance company. So certainly the, the insurance companies like Aviva and Solus have realised that and gone, actually, there's... Um, a possible here, possible sorry, possibility here in the future, where our expenditure is going to increase. So we need to control it. Yeah. Let's create these sites that are, have all these trained people, qualified people, experienced people that have gone through EV training, mm-hmm. you know, ADAS training, mm-hmm. uh, where we can control it. And again, it's it's something where I see that the marketplace changing and adapting. Where uh, on that side of it, it might not necessarily be a bad thing if you've got an insurance company making sure the repairs are being carried out correctly. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the cash in lieu, potentially, you know, somebody could get that cash, get the, the cash to, to repair their vehicle, and they can and they can then go and make that decision to use uh, recycled parts mm-hmm. w- with their own cash. Yeah. And, and, and that wouldn't create any problems, wouldn't create any issues uh, as far uh, from an insurance perspective. From an insurance perspective, no, because they they satisfied their contract. Mm-hmm. So as long as they satisfied their contract, that's all they need to do. Because yeah. there isn't any there isn't any liable. Because with an insurance claim, you actually don't even need to get your car repaired. So should you choose not to repair your vehicle, you're well within your rights. You know, you, you don't need to. And same with, for example, if it was a non-fault accident, when you claim off the other party, should it be where you take them through court action, the court would decide the settlement financially. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't tell the other party to repair the car. Mm-hmm. He'd say, you know, we've quantified the loss that's occurred at the point it hasn't happened. Here's the evidence of it. Yeah. So, Mr. Atfall Insurance Company, you need to pay this person that amount of money. So, it's it's nothing that's different. And it's thing that's, you know, it's established tort law as well from a third yeah. party point of view. So, yeah. whether it be through in contract or tort, that shouldn't be causing an issue because then the issue in terms of our vehicle repair then lies on the repairer. So, I would then expect that the repair repairing the vehicle is probably best place to identify the best way to repair it because they then should have access to the repair methodology from the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how do we, how do we close this circle? How do we, um, you know, 
sort of put this all together with brand new parts, with aftermarket parts, with recycled parts, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and in the insurance repair, how, how do we close that circle? I think it's quite a complex question because it goes off in so many different directions. But what you've got to do is that <clears throat> within a policy of motor insurance, the way it's currently under Leveland, they don't always do it, but 99.9% .9 of the times they do, they'll refer to faction group ratings. Mm -hmm. Now, faction group ratings are based on the use of new parts being fitted, yeah. not on the basis of every claim parts being fitted. So if you're creating a policy and underwriting on that basis that generates a premium, then clearly that group rating based on parts costs affects a premium. So a good example is something like uh, a Ford KA, a Fiat 500 and an Alfa Romeo Mito are all based on the same body shell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ford KA is the cheapest in the insurance groups. Alpha Mito is the highest because when it has a front end collision, the cost of repair on the front of it is more expensive than its counterpart. So it, it's clearly that these costs of repair have, as a byproduct, uh, affect the premium that's quoted for yeah. it. So if you're going to do something where you'd like to bring reclaimed parts into the repair journey, and, and it is something where you're not cashing them in vehicles, then what you would need to do as an insurance company is be transparent. Mm -hmm. And I think what you then need to do is that uh, either at the front of the journey, you would need to say, we operate this basis where we provide two different types of policy. We have one policy where we use a statutory group rating, where we'll guarantee that we'll, fit new, we'll only fit new parts of your vehicle, nothing else. Uh, what we've also got is a budget policy. So, if you agree to the use of reclaimed parts within the repairs of your vehicle, we'll give you some type of preferential discount at the start of it. The issue for insurance companies is that they won't be able to provide enough discount to incentivize those policies to consumers because the difference within the group ratings where that parts cost has a, an effect on it uh, is very, very low. Mm -hmm. So I, I did something recently uh, where I looked at quotes for me on those three vehicles to see the difference on it, just to see if I could quantify what variant it would be or variable. Um, and it's about £50 between the three vehicles. But you know, it's probably because I'm slightly old and grey and hairy. But it wasn't an awful lot. So for an insurance company to kind of reduce a, a policy for using second-hand parts, at the start of it, it's not really beneficial. Yeah. Whereas the benefits are to the insurance company on the back end of it are huge in terms of cost savings because the parts cost, of, you know, you could have the cost of repair for things. So I think then, certainly because they're FCA regulated in the way they operate, they need to be transparent in yeah. terms of the way they uh, communicate with customers. It needs to be done prior to the policy occurring to mm -hmm. be completely transparent. But at the back end of it as well, uh, if it's something where they're deriving some financial benefit from it, I think it'd only be fair where they either share that with the, the consumer and say, right, well, what we'll do is if you agree to this, we'll, we'll waive your excess, for example, because mm -hmm. uh, that would then incentivize the use of it. Yeah. Or maybe even then say, well, put it across the repairer where uh, certainly along the lines of things like total loss avoidance, I think there's certainly, you know, there's benefits there. So whereas if they've got the, the garage working with them, to help educate the customer to say, you know, this is where we're at. It could well be that your vehicle's a total loss or a constructive total loss. If we can use reclaimed parts within this, within this claimer's journey, uh, firstly, it means that you're going to get your car repaired. Second, it means we're repairing the vehicle. 
uh, and it might be that the insurance company waives your excess. So yeah. then if you've got something, again, it's this going back to the example I gave you before mm. where all parties were happy. Yeah. If something is done with an agreement where all parties within that journey are happy, then I don't see it as being much of an issue. I think what happens, the things that I take umbrage with are, are when things are done without the consent or knowledge of the, of the customer within that journey. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay. So how do you see, say, say for example, you know, 2030, uh, the UK government's going to ban internal combustion engines or the sale of brand new ones. Um, we'll have a lot of EVs on the road. The uh, proliferation of ADAS technology will be, you know, significantly different. Um, how do you see the collision repair industry and the insurance claims industry in 2030? What do you think is going to be happening? Uh, I think there's going to be a massive awakening. I think there's going to be sheer fear coming across, you know, all, all areas for it. Uh, I mean, just prior to us starting this podcast off, I was saying about different things that I've been involved with from a consultancy side of it and looking at things like peer-to-peer -peer networking and V2X, so vehicle communications and looking at traffic infrastructures and it is quite frankly terrifying in terms of where things could lie so if you're looking at something where it's v2x so if the listeners are not aware of that this is basically where you've got different ADAS systems in a vehicle and what it'll do is it'll communicate what it's hearing and seeing to other vehicles in its proximity yeah. and it might be that you're coming up to a tra traffic lights mm. and the vehicle you're traveling in says the lights are on green over here uh, there's not much traffic it's fair you know you can still drive fairly quickly it's safe to do so and it'll transmit that data to uh, a single peer so like i said it's peer-to-peer -peer, so it's the car mm -hmm. talking to a traffic network that traffic network might say to another vehicle you know we've we know on this route that you're on it saves the journey because a vehicle's just gone to the same place that you have and you can carry on now should the vehicle that you're in uh have faulty ADAS systems on it or faulty radar or LIDAR and it's not picked up the pedestrians at the side of the road and it thinks you know it's free to carry on that journey when actually it's a highly pedestrianized area and you've got people coming out between parked cars it could well be that this totally innocent road user is an autonomous mode uh suddenly has a pedestrian in front of it and it then gets into real questionable things in terms of liability in terms of software hardware uh calibration you know, if that vehicle hits somebody, who's liable for it? Is it the vehicle that hit them that's liable for it? Is it the software and it didn't see it? Is it the peer-to-peer -peer network? Is it where they got that information from? So I think certainly going forwards into the future, uh, it's not something that the insurance industry, repair industry, or anybody else who's involved in it can take lightly. Yeah. And I can see it certainly getting to an area where I think you'll need uh, qualified technicians that, Maybe in the, in the way we've got gas engineers being cargo registered, uh, yeah. it might well be that certainly on an EV side of it and the calibration side of it, it might be that you need some type of recognised standard yeah. uh, that's recognised from the government as being a, a certification uh, yeah. where it provides assurance to whoever owns a vehicle that the vehicle's being repaired correctly and done yeah. to the, the appropriate standard. But yeah. again, from an insurance company's point of view, uh, it's that again, it's that vicarious liability which you know it, it's something that i always harp on about quite harsh because uh i said before we started this podcast we've done today we're talking about the case in america with the yeah. honda jazz yeah and that not being repaired to our standards 
that was a 30 million pound lawsuit mm. well 30 million dollar lawsuit mm. and there's a secondary lawsuit in the background it's 100 million 100 million dollars mm. so to have something like that where in the future just something where having the knowledge of something not being calibrated correctly that could lead to something else happening is something they need to take seriously but it's something that needs to be uh regulated in my opinion by the government right okay that's brilliant and you've you've had a, a you know a long life working working with cars um and is there any advice you can give young and aspiring leaders who want to you know get into the vehicle repair industry or in other words what advice would the current tim give to the 22 year old tim uh do what you're passionate about because if you're not passionate about it you'll get bored of it and you'll go off and do something else mm -hmm. uh and then it means that it's not enjoyable to come to work if it's not, you know, if it's not your passion, you don't enjoy it, then probably ultimately you won't succeed at it because yeah. you won't want to invest in your future and do it. So whatever it is you're looking at doing, uh, do what you're passionate about and do what you enjoy. And then actually then it actually doesn't become a, a career. It just becomes something you enjoy doing. Uh, I, I love what I do. I'm totally passionate about it. And it's, it's things where there's been certain parts in my life where I didn't enjoy what I was doing. Um, uh, Certainly when I worked for insurance companies, there's bits where I did enjoy it and I enjoyed the, the staff who worked there. Uh, what's quite funny now is the people that are on this podcast can't see the Zoom call and Andy laughing his head off because he knows me fast. But is uh, yeah, there's certain times and certainly, you know, without a doubt, I'm sure my previous past employers and managers couldn't stand me because they saw me as being a pain in the ass. But, you know, I was doing things for the right reasons at the times when I did it. Mm. Um, but ultimately, what you've got to take from whatever it is you do, you can go through bad parts in your life career journey wise uh, and good parts and the thing to do is take the positive out of the negative so anytime you're going through something that's not great it's probably a lesson you might need to learn uh, and it takes you on your path of learning and you then you then know not to do it again in the future or it might be you can look at things in a different way and you never stop learning so it's always about furthering your education furthering your knowledge uh don't be stagnant you know it's don't just think right i've done this i know what i'm doing that's it i don't need to do anything else um at every part of my life i think i've actually learned that what i thought i knew i didn't know and only a fool thinks they know everything and it's it's only the kind of people who become a bit more wise realize that the more they know the, the, the little they know so keep educating yourself uh Probably, I would, I'd say, read at least a book a month on something. Uh, and again, something that people can't see in this podcast because me and Andy are on Zoom at the moment is we can both see each other. Um, our room's filled with books. So I'm, I'm guessing the pair of us kind of share the same philosophy on reading because I, I can read like I don't know what. Absolutely. So, yeah, so read a book a month. Make it, and it, it doesn't matter what it's on. It could be on anything you want, but find something you're passionate about and read about it and learn and don't remain stagnant on it. Brilliant. Amazing. And one final question, and we ask all our guests on the podcast, what was your first car? And do you have any special memories of that car? Well, I've actually had two first cars, if you're allowed two first cars, which might sound a bit daft. So my first first car was when I was 14. Uh, and that's the reason why I've had two first cars, because I never got to, to drive it. So I got my first car when I was 14. I bought a Volkswagen Beetle for 120 quid. And for some crazy reason, my parents let me buy it. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and then I proceeded to pull it apart. <laughs> Didn't necessarily put it back together again, just pulled it apart. Uh, but I started off doing that, and then when I first started then working at Saab uh, as a YTS mechanic, I got introduced to the, to the snap-on van, which is the worst possible thing that can happen to any mechanic, uh, because I just spent all my money on tools, uh, and then I proceeded to start repairing this beetle. And then that helped me buy my second first car. So I bought the Beetle for 120 quid, uh, partly rebuilt the engine and put some new barrels and pistons on it, went through the brakes on it. Uh, it had bits of rot on it, which I couldn't weld up, but I, I chopped some of it out and then got it ready uh, and then sold it 400 quid. And then from that, what then happened then was about my second first car, which is what I, after I passed my test, mm -hmm. uh, drove was a Fiat Panda. And I absolutely loved it. It was an absolutely fantastic little thing. Um, basically because the, the rear seats were like a hammock and you could put it in lots of different directions and throw stuff in the back of it. Uh, it was a 903 over Red Valve 1 and it would just rev and rev and rev. Uh, it was indestructible. And I pretty much did try to destruct it and it just didn't let go. Uh, it was also amazing off-road. And because it, it had like little 145 size tires, uh, there's not really anywhere it couldn't go. So we used to go out camping and do things with my, my mates and go all, the, all over the place. And as you do when you're 17 year old, uh, you're never out your car. And it used to be that, you know, it might be me and a couple of mates, and then I'd be like, right, who's got some shrapnel in the pocket? <laughs> who's going to, you know, let's all chip it. And it was quite literally, let's put a pound in each. Yeah. Uh, you could fill it up for like 15 quid. So Farber get used to, you know, right up into the Lake District. And then we used to just go camping. We used to go absolutely everywhere in it. Awesome little thing. Uh, and then I had a mate run into the back of it and write it up and that were it. Killed it. It was a yeah. shame. Loved it. I still love pandas now. I think they're brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. What a wonderful story. Absolutely brilliant. Tim, thank you very, very much for your time. It's been an inspiration listening to you, uh, to you today. Uh, and thank you for all that you're doing and thank you for your time today. No, it's been absolutely my pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. Thank you. A big thank you to Tim for his time and his knowledge. You will find details on how to contact Motor Claim Guru in the notes for this episode. Please subscribe and take the time to like and share this podcast with your friends and your colleagues. And please give us a rating. And we look forward to seeing you on our next podcast. Thank you.